Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is continuing the journey through the 14 characteristics to being a healthy church. We're taking a look at unity. Today's talk is titled, I'm Just Sharing My Opinion, How Complaining Destroys Unity. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around until the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. chapter 11, toward the beginning of your Old Testament, among the five books of Moses. Numbers chapter 11. We're going through a series here. This is kind of a mini-series amongst a much larger umbrella series as we're trying to look at 14 characteristics of a healthy church. And one of those characteristics is that the early church following Pentecost, God described them as being a very unified church. And so we're taking a few Sundays out just to look at what church unity is and how we create a more unified bunch. I don't think there's anyone here who doesn't want to attend a unified, loving family. And it said of the early church in Acts 2, verses 46, 47, it says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, but they also, it says, they were having favor with all the people. That word favor with all the people means that they operated as one who had singleness of heart. They spoke as one voice. They all wanted the same things. They were going the same direction. There's not an individual here who doesn't want to be a part of a church that's like that. Unity and singleness of heart blesses any organization. I don't care if you're a church or if you're a fast food restaurant. We want to go somewhere that's unified. Now, my favorite choice of fast food restaurants in the Midwest is a chain called Culver's. And just to show you the great sacrifice that we, we made in coming here, the nearest Culver's is like, I don't know, like a three-hour drive away from here. And so that is of tremendous uh, impact to my heart, but uh, the gospel is worth it. Culver's is a beautiful place. If you've ever been on a road trip, stop through Culver's. It's sort of like Chick-fil-A with a bigger menu, okay? It's clean. Uh, The people are just immaculately tailored, and their customer service is unbeatable. They bring the food to your table, and it's just, it's it's a wonderful place, and they have cheese curds and custard, and uh, it makes me very happy. (laughs) Except for one time. We knew that any time we go into Culver's, we're gonna walk out there feeling good because they're polite and they're, they're kind and they're generous and they make me feel human again. And so we sit down and I'm having my burger and my curds and my root beer and my custard and all that stuff and I'm having just a lovely little date with my wife. And then along came one of these Culver's workers who was also well-trained and he comes by and now he started talking to us and it was clear that he had obvious intellectual disability. Uh, but he was still a very capable fellow. And he just came by and he's smiling, he's talking to us. He even sat down with us and he's just talking to us and we were just having a great time with him. He made our day. Just to see this delightful fellow being used of God in this way and, and just uh, ministering to people at Culver's. And so eventually he got up and we, we continued on with our meal and along came another worker. And this lady wasn't like any other Culver's worker I ever met. Uh, it, was a, it was a woman probably in her mid-50s. I think her name tag said Karen. You see where I'm going with this. And she comes by and she says, oh, that fellow, and she names him by name. She says, yeah, he's always trying to, you know, suck up to the customers. 
He uses his intellectual disability and his friendliness to try to get tips from people. And by the way, I'm very puzzled because Culver's isn't a tipping restaurant any more than Burger King or McDonald's. So I'm trying to see what she's driving at. But this woman comes by and she spoils the whole lunch because she just starts complaining and she kept hanging around our table. And she had nothing good to say about Culver's, the owner, uh, this, this boy with intellectual disability, but who's sweet and kind and brightened our day. And just on and on and on and on she went. My wife and I are thinking, when is she going to leave? And eventually, before we were even completely done with our meal, I'm like, forget it, forget it, forget it. And I just kind of wrapped up my burger and <laughs> took our drink, and we walked out the door. Normally, we like to linger there and just kind of refill our drinks and talk about our day. But this time, we couldn't wait to leave one of my favorite places in the world. Why? It's because somebody brought in this stinky, negative, complaining spirit. And it was just disgusting to be around. I couldn't wait to leave. And you know, in, in many cases, sometimes people come to church feeling the same way. They come to church, out there in the world, they treat you poorly, they just do. I mean, it's full of lost people who are hurting and they hurt you. And so you come to church and you wanna be welcomed, you wanna be loved, you want people to smile at you, you want them to shake your hand, maybe give you a hug. And uh, you come here to be fed, if you will, from the word of God. And there's certain expectations that when you come to the house of God, you don't want to encounter some of those negative things that if you wanted those, you can see them in the world all day long. We just don't want to see it in the house of God. And it can leave people with a negative taste in their mouth about church and about God. We don't want to be like that. And so in Numbers chapter 11, hopefully you've found your way there, we're going to, if you will, the epicenter of complaining in all the Bible. There's more complaining in and around this region uh, because it's Israel's wilderness wanderings. Nothing like a good road trip to stir up people for contention, like your kids, stop poking me, you know? And it just, it can be frustrating. So they're on this road trip and at Numbers 11, Israel has pulled off the highway. They're at a rest stop. Okay, at Mount Sinai. And at this time, a lot of good things happened there at Sinai, right? Notwithstanding the giving of the law. But they had consecrated their Levitical priest. They had just celebrated the Passover. They had built, if you will, their mobile temple, this tabernacle. They're on a spiritual high. There's a lot of great things happening here. They should be a happy people who are consecrated to the Lord. Instead, what we're going to find is a group of complaining people and God is going to show us several effects of that complaining and what happens. So the first thing we're going to see here is in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 1 is that complaining makes God angry. I, I, can't, I can't candy coat that any. It, it just really does. Look here, it says, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord. And by the way, every time we complain, God hears. They complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, it says his anger was kindled. They're complaining about their misfortunes. The Bible doesn't record any major catastrophic thing happening here. What they're complaining about most often is just silly little things. They like to complain about food. They complain about water. They complain about Moses. They complain about not having melons or not having leeks and onions you're gonna see a little bit later. They're complaining just about their discomforts. They're complaining that they were inconvenienced. Maybe they're complaining about the sand. But it's just, there's small things. There's these little irritants in their life, but they're just always just offering up these complaints. And it says when, God's, uh, when, when they complained, it angered the Lord. In other words, this is sinful. They shouldn't be doing this. Now, sometimes we think about complaining, we don't think of it as being a sinful thing. But just because we don't feel like something is sinful doesn't mean it's not sinful. It just means we didn't realize that Paul in Romans says, I wouldn't know what sin is except for the law told me. And so there's certain things in our life that, that we do, we don't realize God is actually displeased with. 
And we need to know because I don't want the anger of the Lord kindled. You know, you'll talk to some people about complaining, and I'll tell you, this is a phrase that we've heard at every ministry I've ever been at in my entire life. We hear about complaining, and people like to give it another name. They'll just say, well, I'm just sharing my opinion. Or I had, I had somebody once say, you know, the U.S. gives me the freedom of speech. Well, the U.S. may guarantee our freedom of speech, but God limits our freedoms to speaking of what Ephesians 4 says is the truth in love. We're not free to share anything that comes to our mind. We, we're not free to excuse it under a personality type. Well, that's just who I am. I just, I just tell it like it is. Well, I, I want to tell them, don't say that very loud because the Bible says a fool gives full vent to his anger. A fool is known for his many words. Okay, we don't want to announce that we're a fool. That's just who I am. I'm a fool, you know? I just say whatever comes to my mind. I don't filter anything. I just tell it like it is. I'm being authentic. I'm keeping it real. Uh, these are not the terms that describe a mature Christian. So if that's you, friends, I'm just encouraging you, pull that out of your vocabulary. Okay, so complaining is a Hebrew word that means to find fault. That's what complaining is, is to find fault. Now, many times we think we're just finding fault in a circumstance, or we think we're finding fault in a person, but ultimately when a believer complains, who are we finding fault with? We're finding fault with the Lord. You say, well, how could that be? Because understanding who God is, that he is a sovereign God, and that he brings both good and bad into our life for a reason, that God is so in control of this world, he says he feeds even the little birds of the air, the sparrows, that God is in control of the day of our death. Jesus himself said that God is in control of the hairs on our head, not that he knows how many we have, but God determined how many you should have. God is fully in control. Ecclesiastes 7.14, a verse we've used many times. It says, in the day of, adverse, of prosperity rejoice, but there's also a day of adversity. It says God created the one as well as the other. So any even adverse things that are happening in our life, things that are against us, that hurt, that are painful, the Bible reminds us God brought that into our life for a reason. So when we complain about that adverse situation, what are we finding fault with? God, how can you allow me to go through this kind of suffering? We're finding fault with God when we complain. You say, well, I'm not mad at God. I'm just mad with this person, mad with this leader. Surely God didn't put that leader in my life. What does Romans 13, one say? Anybody wanna quote it? No. All right, we'll read it. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, he says, because there's no authority except from who? God. And those that exist have been instituted by who? God. So every leader, good, bad, they're all instituted by God. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar, the guy that set up a gold statue to be worshiped, God called him my servant. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the, the Lord. And like the rivers of water, God turns that king, makes him do what he does. Now, sometimes God allows that king to do bad things to us and allows bad things to happen in our life to inconvenience us, to bring discomfort, and we may be upset, but when we complain about that, ultimately we're finding fault with God for allowing that circumstance in my life. We believe that God has somehow wronged us or done us wrong. And so, clearly, that's why it says the anger of the Lord was kindled. Kindle is a word that means to glow. If you've ever been a Boy Scout, I wasn't. I skipped Boy Scouts, went straight to Scout Master when I got older. Didn't mean I knew much about scouting though. So we would go and we would build fires and however you're building it with these you know, fuzz sticks or you're building other things, you have kindling. Things that are going to easily set fire and ultimately produce a flame. And so to kindle something, you, if you're, you know, you're building with friction or whatever, you see something start to glow, what do you know is about to happen? Fire is about to burst forth from that. 
And so here it says that God began to glow when he saw the complaining of the people of Israel, that God himself was so upset. There was, there was a glowing. You know when the glowing's there, fire's about to come forth. Let's look at point number two, complaining is judged by God. It says in verse one, uh, later on, it says, the fire of the Lord then burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses, and it says, and then the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. So God responded to the complaining in the camp by burning the outlying parts of the camp. Why? Because that's evidently where the complaining was taking place. God did not accidentally destroy the outlying parts of the camp. What is significant that the complaining was happening in the outlying parts of the camp? It's because that's usually where the complaining begins, isn't it? It's not usually in the center of what God's doing in a church or the center of what's happening in in an organization. The complaining usually happens kind of on the periphery, the outside edge, the people who aren't terribly faithful, not terribly involved, not typically the biggest givers. They're They're not the ones who are intimately connected to what God is doing, central to the church's purpose and vision. It's on the outside. And then we become Statler and Waldorf. Who's with me? You guys know, uh, you ever watch The Muppet Show? I grew up watching Jim Henson's The Muppets. You watch that? It's this, essentially you got, you know, Kermit the Frog, you got Fozzie Bear, you got Miss Piggy, Gonzo, and all the rest of his crowd, and they're doing kind of some little variety show, and they bring on guest stars, and, and they're trying to put on this show, and it's silly, and it's funny, and then, but ultimately, before they cut to a commercial break, what do they do? They pan over to this, like, box seat, and who's in the box seat? You got these two old men, and by the way, maybe you didn't know this, their names are Statler and Waldorf. So you got these two old men, they're all, Oh, 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 look what they're doing. This is so stupid, you know. And they're mocking everything that they're trying to do. Now, these two old guys, are they contributing to the show? No, they're spectators. Are they, are they intimately involved with trying to entertain the crowd, to produce it, to make the Muppet show move forward? No. What do they do? They sit on the periphery, the outside edge, and they throw stones, if you will. They're just mocking and they're scorning, and we think it's funny. And it's funny on the Muppet show. It's not funny if it's in a church where the people on the periphery who aren't part of the big show, who aren't trying to move things forward, just sit there and scorn and mock and laugh and criticize, and all they are is spectators. We don't wanna be in the periphery. That's why it's so important, by the way, that all of us are in the center of what God is doing. All of us are a part and active in God's work. So you've got these people in the periphery where the fire of the Lord is burning, and when it says the fire, God's fire burned among them, it says it's a fire of the Lord, this is not some natural fire. This isn't an accident. Some kid was playing with matches, you know, over in the corner. This is God's fire burned among them. And when we see fire in the Bible, it's always a a type of God's, or a symbol of God's judgment against sin. That's what fire is. We know that hell is described as a fire. Sodom and Gomorrah for its homosexuality, God judged that and rained down fire and brimstone. So that fire is God's fire judging something that was sinful and evil. Jesus' eyes, who are, have that penetrating gaze in, in Revelation chapter one, it's his, it describes Jesus' eyes as eyes like fire, these, these consuming eyes, these eyes that are going to judge sin once and for all. In fact, in Revelation four five, it talks about how fire proceeded from the throne of God you know, to consume his enemies. So fire is a type of God's judgment. It's something that infuriates God. And in this particular case, what infuriated God was complaining. How do we turn back to judgment, the fires of God? We do what the people did here. What does it say? 
The people cried out to Moses. Moses, if you will, was, there, was interceding between them and God. They're, go, they're crying out to Moses to repent to God. There's, there's bad things happening and we're hurting. So go to God and help him to call him to, to, to call this off. We repent. And they cried out to God. And what, we'll, what we know of God is even though God may be angry and upset with sin and God may judge sin, is God also a, a loving and merciful God? He is. First John 1 John 1.9, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7 says, The Lord, he is a God who is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is our God. Yes, he is holy. Yes, he will judge sin. But like the father of the prodigal son, the moment we turn back to God in repentance, seeing us a long way off, God is running to our side. So God will judge sin, but if we relent, we repent of this sin, God will quickly forgive. And after God relented from this judgment, they called the, that location where they complained and the fires of God burned, they called it Taborah. It's just a, a Hebrew word meaning burning. So every time later on, generations would drive through there and they would stop to gas up their car and the kids get out and they're using the restroom. Where are we at, Dad? We're in a town called uh, Taborah. Oh yeah, burning. And it's a reminder continually that complaining is something that God did not deal lightly with. When we find fault with what God is doing, the name of this town is to be a perpetual reminder of what displeases God. We'll see number three here that complaining is a hard habit to break. It's not easy, and let's, let's be honest here. I'm not preaching to anybody here but myself. There's not a soul here that we haven't gone through difficult times and we have uttered complaints. This is something that hits everybody. Verse four, it says, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost, by the way, nothing, just kind of twisting the knife on, on uh, Moses there. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, all difficult things to get in the middle of a desert wilderness wandering. He says, but now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. I could just see them kind of just throwing the manna down in disgust. All there is is this manna. It's disgusting. Who's the one doing the complaining? It's a people called the rabble, okay? And it talks about the rabble and it distinguishes them from the rest of the children of Israel. The rabble are a group of these people, these non-Jews who followed them out of Egypt, who saw the power of their God and followed along with them, likely other slave nations and others who just wanted to follow their God, but not Jews. They're people who are living among the Jews, they act like the Jews, they talk with the Jews, they're friends with the Jews, but they don't know God. And they start to complain, which is just amazing to me, by the way, that these people start to complain. Did they not, did they that quickly forget how God dealt with complaining the last time? Through the fires of judgment? And yet they complain again. What we're gonna see here is that you've got the rabble that are complaining. These people who are with the people of God, but really don't know God. Not related to them, not their covenant people. In the church today, we would call them tares. Jesus told a parable called the wheat and the tares. You know, they, these two plants, they grow in the same field. They look a lot alike. They're both consuming resources in the garden. One produces fruit that gives life. The other one just sucks the life out of the fruit-bearing plants, and that's the tares. 
And Jesus compares that to lost people that are in the church. You come to church, you look good, you smell good. Uh, Maybe you teach Sunday school, maybe you've been here a long time, I don't know. But there are people who are in these circumstances who may even call Jesus Lord. Remember Jesus says, in that day, in the day of judgment, there will be many who say, Lord, Lord. They call Jesus Lord by name, but they don't live out Jesus as Lord in their hearts. They don't let Jesus rule their hearts. He's not on their throne. He doesn't let, they don't let Jesus call the shots for their life. Okay, those are the tares. They're people who are churched people, but they're, they're not true believers. How can we spot them? Do we have a tear detector in the church in the back every time somebody comes through? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Miss Barbara, you're gonna have to step back through the, uh, the, tear, you know, the tear meter or whatever. We don't have that. There's no way that we can truly tell, but Jesus says there are things that tip you off. Matthew chapter seven, verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Outwardly, they look like one of God's sheep. He says, but inwardly, they have a different appetite. God's sheep want to consume the word of God. These wolves want to consume God's sheep. They have a different appetite. He says, inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. He says, but you'll recognize them by their fruit. They may look like a sheep, but let's watch how they behave. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs figs from thistles? If you just said yes right there, I know you're not part of 4-H. You don't get figs from thistles, do you? You get figs from fig trees, right? And so he says, look at their life, the fruit. What does their life produce? If their life generally and characteristically is producing nothing but pain, difficulty, hardship, uh, fighting, complaining, just anger, resentment, difficulty, the Bible says those aren't characteristics of a fig tree. What is? It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the, very, it's the very life of Christ being expressed through the Holy Spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, you know, self-control. These kind of things, you look at that and you say, ah, that's a fig tree. That's what a child of God is supposed to look like. It's the, it's the greatest evidence you're truly a child of God is that God has transformed your life, that you don't just believe in Jesus, Jesus is your life. And he is living his life through you. The rabble here didn't get that. They didn't understand it. And they just start complaining because they don't have the life of God in them. And when they start to complain, what do we see? It says, then also God's people joined them. They started weeping and they started complaining. What you see here is complaining is contagious. It's a COVID outbreak for the church. When one person complains, it's very easy for that to become contagious. It's what the Bible calls sowing discord. You know, we plant that seed of discontentment. Now, now I'm not just the one that's mad. Now you're mad, and they're mad. And then we got a bunch of people mad. Then you have a whole bunch of people complaining and weeping before the Lord over their griefs. Now, what were these people complaining about? They were complaining about manna. Uh, Look at verse 7. God describes a little bit about manna. Manna, it's, it's nutritious, not terribly delightful. It says, manna was like coriander seed in its appearance like delium, which is just a, a type of resin, an amber-colored resin that comes from the trees. And so uh, it, kind of describing the nature and consistency of manna. And the people went on and they gathered in the ground in hand mills, they beat it into mortars, they boiled it in pots, and they made cakes out of it. And the taste of it was like cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna fell with it. He's describing manna, and it's not terribly impressive. This is literally just, give us this day, Lord, our daily bread. I've had oil cakes before. Don't think Krispy Kreme. It's not flavorful. I had, in China, they would often have these cakes, and it would look like a sweet American cake. We'd get really excited, and we'd buy it. We'd bring it home. We'd bite into it, and it just tasted like 
corn oil. We're just thinking, what is that? You know, it, it looked so promising, but it it was, the taste was just so, so bland and so unsweet. And it was disappointing to me. And, and that's kind of what Israel's experiencing here. They're, they're hoping that God is gonna provide them this wonderful five-course dinner, but what did God provide? Their needs only, these, these oil cakes. And it's just, it's nutritious, it'll keep you alive. It's, it's not gonna be something that you're requesting every year at Christmas. Mom, would you make those oil cakes again? It's, you need something to go along with it. And so they got sick of, these, of, these, of this manna. And so their flesh is calling out to God, my flesh wants more. I know you've given me this, but it's not enough. I don't enjoy it. I don't appreciate this. God, would you give me more? Not just give me this day our daily bread, but give me this day our daily lobster. Actually, they shouldn't be praying that. That was unclean back then for them. So they, but they wanted something more than what God was providing. And so they find fault with God. James 4.1 says, this is the cause of a lot of our fighting. We have certain fleshly desires. We want to be living a comfortable, enjoyable, and convenient life. And when we don't have that, sometimes that's really what gets us to fight. It's not usually in a church that we're fighting over whether the church does evangelism or whether the church is very, very much involved in discipleship. We get upset when we're just inconvenienced. Something happened, it wasn't convenient to me, it didn't taste good, and so I'm gonna let people know. And James 4.1 says, that's what causes fighting. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. I'm just bugged. Something didn't go my way. So this, by the way, this complaining, Israel didn't break it right away. Even after the fires of God's judgment, they're complaining again. And this is a series of complaints. During the life of Moses alone, do you know that we read of 14 such complaint outbreaks amongst the people of Israel? 14. They're always griping. They're not thinking about how God led them out of the land through these great and mighty miracles. They're not praising him for leading them by a cloud by day and a fire by night. They're saying, yeah, there's still more that we want from you, God. We're not happy. And so we're going to complain about our hunger. We're going to complain about the manna. We're going to complain about our leadership. And they just, Israel just gripes all the way through this wilderness wandering. Well, how do we break this? Like we saw a little earlier, when they repent to God, this is how we break the cycle of complaining. And we create a warm, might I say, even Culver's-like experience where people can come and feed and enjoy one another and get good customer service, okay? So first thing we can do is admit that A, complaining is a sin. It's not, we don't relabel it. You know, we don't do it like all these other sins we out there. It's not baby murder, it's abortion, it's not adultery, it's an affair. It's not complaining, it's just sharing my opinion or I have a freedom of speech. We don't, we don't label it as something else. We acknowledge God, God's anger is kindled when we complain. And then B, we are mindful when we complain. We think about it, we monitor everything we say. I'd love to challenge you, even just for a day or maybe an entire week, you and your mate keep each other accountable. Just kind of be observant of everything that comes out of your lips and see how often we're tempted to just grumble, to just complain, and to try to pause that and put a, put a grate over our mouth and try to hold things back. Like Psalm 141.3 says, he says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. I mean, I want you to put someone there and to stand watch over my mouth and put bars over my mouth to prevent from what's inside escaping. He says, keep watch over the door of my lips. What he sees is, like Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so sometimes our, our heart is filled with pain and turmoil and, and anger, and those things want to escape our lips. And so, like David here, we're praying, God, guard my mouth so that nothing escapes that's, that's going to hurt people. 
Proverbs says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. So the words that we share, they're not neutral. They're always either helpful, instructing, building people up, or they're tearing people down. So we want to be careful that the words that come out of our mouth glorify God and bless others. And the last thing, see here, focus on the corresponding spiritual virtue. We don't just want to be people that don't complain. I'm not going to complain, I'm not going to complain, I'm not going to complain. What am I focusing on? Complaining? Okay. So we don't want to just be that guy. The Bible says, you know, let him who stole steal no more, Ephesians 4. But it says, but it doesn't just say don't steal, don't steal, don't steal, don't steal. What does it say? But rather let him work with his hands so that he may be able to give to those who are in need. As Christians, we focus on the opposite virtue. What's the opposite of complaining? It's, it's thankfulness, okay? We, so we want to be a thankful people. Here's a good verse to memorize, by the way. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, give thanks in all circumstances. Is it possible, by the way, to do something in all circumstances to be thankful? Is it possible that I could be receiving pain and not have to communicate my disgust with other people? The Bible says it's possible. In fact, he commands us, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We talk about the will of God. Most of the time, it's God, should I buy this car? God, should I date this girl? Should I marry this girl? Uh, should I go to this school? Should I take this job? Should I live here? Or should I live a little further away in Huntington, closer to my job or closer to my church? This is what we usually think of as the will of God in left-right areas, not right-wrong areas. But God has made it very clear, if you worry about the right-wrong areas, the left-right areas will be much more clear to you. So worry about what is, not just what's God's will for this circumstance, but what is God's will? God's will is that we'll be a thankful people. And whether or not, because there's always a circumstance in our life where you're gonna have pain and you're gonna have something good happening, right? If we went around and we got testimony, I'll bet you every last one of you that came here in this church, you probably have something painful happening in your life right now, don't you? And if we would stop and think about it, you probably also have blessings that are happening too. Whether or not you're a happy person or a miserable person depends on whether or not you're going to focus on the hardships or you're focusing on God's blessings. Whether or not we're going to be a complaining person saying, God, despite all the blessings you've given to me, I'm still mad because there's this pain here. Or thankful, God, despite all of the difficulties I'm going through right now, I'm choosing to focus on this good thing you're doing in my life. That's thankfulness, and that's God's will for us. You know, every fourth, what is it, fourth Thursday of every November, we set aside a day for thankfulness. And we remember, you know, our pilgrims, you know, the guys with the funny hats, and, and they, they come over on the Mayflower, like 100, what is it, 102 people, teachers? Something like that. And they come over on this Mayflower, and they're going through extreme hardship. They've already kind of left for religious freedom. They're suffering, so they're making this grand journey across the ocean, and they're sleeping on just little hay mats, you're wearing the same clothes every day. There's nobody that showed up with a locker full of clothes, you know? And you know, you're not getting to shower every day. You know, people are throwing up, they're sick. You're eating stale food. I mean, you're like eating beef jerky for, you know, 66 days, you know? And you're, you're instead, you can't even drink regular water though you'd like to. They actually, people always joke, they drank beer on the Mayflower. They did, but not because it was like something they loved and desired. It's because if you just had water there, it'd get brackish and make you sick. So they had to drink, you know, just kind of this nasty beer stuff and they'd have to drink, uh, having to eat stale food. They're sleeping on mats together. People are crying. They even had a funeral. It would be like us getting on a ship in those conditions and not being able to get off that ship until September 25th. Now, how would that make you feel? Would you be able to be thankful? Well, they get on the shores and it's even worse, isn't it? Half, fully half of their people died that first winter. 
And they're, they're entering back into that next winter, and yet we pause and take time for God's blessings. In fact, from William Bradford's own journal, it says this, May not and ought not the children of these fathers rightly say, Our fathers were Englishmen which came over this great ocean, and they were ready to perish in this wilderness. But they cried to the Lord, and he heard their voice, and he looked on their adversity. Let them therefore praise the Lord, because he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Now, for there's a lot of us, we're probably thankful, first of all, that we weren't on the Mayflower, and second of all, that they didn't read our journal. What would your journal look like? Uh, half our people die, and they're all complaining to me. You know, I, I, I'm missing all my friends and family back home. Don't even have good stores to shop at. I got to cook all my own food all the time and kill animals and got to deal with Indians. And, and we would just talk about all the negative things possibly. But in Bradford's journal, we read that despite all the suffering they were going through, his thought was continually on Almighty God and his great mercies that endure forever. Where was his focus? It wasn't on his pain and suffering. It was on what God is doing. That's how you maintain a positive outlook in life. Positive outlook, positive, optimistic people, they're not that way naturally. It's, it's the life of Jesus working through them to help them to see what God is doing and not just focus on the pains and sufferings of this life. And number four, we're gonna see here that complaining, it burdens those who lead you. Look at verse 10. <clears throat> it says, Moses heard the people, and he heard their weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of their tent. They're weeping and they're complaining and they're just, they're sorrowful. Moses was able to hear it. And can I tell you, no matter where you are, when we complain, ultimately, everybody, we hear. Don't, don't think your pastor doesn't hear the complaining. I do hear the complaints. And you know what? My heart isn't upset as much as it is sad. Sad that you're sad. That you're, that you're hurting. That you're going through these difficult times. But I do want you to hear, nobody complains in secrecy. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 20. It says, even in your thoughts... Do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for the birds of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. You've heard that phrase, you know, how'd you hear that? Well, a little birdie told me, comes from Ecclesiastes 10. You know, that there's this idea that when we speak, we think nobody hears us. We're out at a restaurant in town, we're talking, we think nobody hears us, but there's somebody, you know, two, you know, two chairs away or whatever, and they hear everything we say. You'd be surprised what you can hear from a sound booth. You know, you people hear things. And so we've got to be careful who we, who we speak to and how we share about those people. And when these complaints were happening and it was entering the ears of Moses, do you think it had any kind of impact on Moses' heart? The Bible says it did. It says in the middle of verse 10, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly and Moses was displeased. And Moses says to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all these people upon me? And then Moses continues. He sees all of this complaining as kind of childish. He, look what he compares him to in verse 12. Did I, not, did I give them birth, Lord? That you should say to me, carry, me, carry them in your bosom as a, as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers. Where am I to give meat to all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. He's saying, God, are these, are these my babies? Are these my children that are constantly complaining? And by the way, that's kind of characteristic of a child, isn't it? Our children, they, they aren't naturally thankful. It's something they have to be taught to do, to count their blessings, because children naturally complain. I complained with the best of them as a kid. 
I know I disappointed my mom many times. In the summertime, where most of you guys are here, you know, moms, they're having to deal with children, they're having to make them lunches they don't normally, and my mom would make me lunches during the school summer break. I remember one particular summer, my mom would, she would typically make whatever is quick and easy during the summers because, well, it's hot, she's tired, and she had nine kids. So she would typically open up a can of Campbell's soup and reconstitute it, you know, and mix it up and make a sandwich for us, PJs or bologna and cheese or something. And I remember one time I asked my mom, what's for lunch? And she says, soup and sandwiches. And I still remember it to this day. I I kind of replied to her in this complaining, sing-songy voice. Soup and sandwiches, soup and sandwiches. All we ever have is soup and sandwiches. And as soon as those words escaped my lips, I just immediately felt this shame cover me. Like, did that come out of my mouth? And I I remember my mom's uh, look. She was, it was a combination of both uh, disappointment and anger. Uh, Moms have a way of communicating that. And she was just, there was disappointment and anger coming from it. I just remember feeling this tremendous shame. Who am I? I should be happy that I have food. I should be happy that my mom made me food. I didn't have to make it. Furthermore, I'm not even gonna have to do the dishes, but all I can focus on is not what I do have, all this manna. <laughs> I'm just focusing on it, it's not what I wanted. And that's, that's characteristic of children. They behave that way. Children are characterized by complaining. What are adults characterized by? Not that. <laughs> Philippians 2.14, he says, Paul writes, do all things without grumbling or disputing. All things. Grumbling, by the way, is when we kind of grumble under our breath. Oh, that no good, I can't believe that happened. I'm I'm miserable. Disputing is when you complain to people's face. Howard, how could you do this to me? He didn't do anything, by the way. You know, and we just, we start confronting a person, we're complaining to their face. So he says, do all things without grumbling under your breath or disputing, grumbling to their face. He says, so that you may be blameless and innocent. In other words, if you are grumbling and disputing, God does not hold you innocent. He says, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Why does that make us shine so much? It's because the rest of the world doesn't behave this way, does it? The rest of the world, every time we feel a little bit of pain, we always have to cry out in anger and frustration. But then when we experience pain and the, and the world sees Christians suffering but not complaining, suffering but not disputing, they're like, boy, you stick out. You, know, it, you shine as a light in the world. They're like, wow, what makes such a difference in your life that you can go through the same pains that I do but yet you don't open your mouth? It almost looks a lot like somebody I read about in the Bible named Jesus who though he had his beard plucked and he was struck and he was mocked and ridiculed and beaten within an inch of his life and then crucified, it says like a sheep before his shears, he didn't open his mouth. Jesus proved once for all, we can experience pain, but we don't have to communicate it and harm others. And by the way, these these words that Paul shared in Philippians 2, remember Philippians is a prison epistle. He's writing these words, this epistle of joy is, is written from incarceration. So while he's telling you do all things without grumbling or disputing, but shine as lights in the world, he's doing this from the perspective of prison. We're gonna see here that eventually the weight of this complaining is going to overwhelm Moses. Look at verse verse 14. Moses still talking to God. He says, I am not able to carry these people alone. This burden is too heavy for me. 
Moses as a leader feels like all the complaints of the people just keep adding to his weight. And so Moses, he's walking around, he's saying, God, I can't take this pain anymore. It's so heavy. I can't take this burden anymore. And by the way, this Hebrew word for burden is the same word that describes how the people under the plagues of Egypt felt. How would you feel if every day there was like this new plague coming up? Oh, look, there's dead toads everywhere. Oh, look, there's, you know, there's, there's flies everywhere. All of our cattle are dying. The rivers turned to blood. Firstborn have died in every household. And it's just every day it's like, oh, not again. When will this suffering stop? They felt burdened. And that's the word that God uses to describe how Moses felt under the complaining of his people. He just felt this burden, not again. And he just feels overwhelmed by, this, by the grumbling and the disputing that's going on. Hear me say this. Complaining is a burden that we lay upon our leaders that we should have laid upon the Lord. Complaining is a burden that we lay upon our leaders that we should have laid upon the Lord. 1 Peter 5, 7, what does it say? Casting all your anxieties, your pain, your burdens, where do we cast them? We roll them off, it says, on the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. Why? Because God is the one who can actually do something about that. The people we complain to, they're not omniscient. They're not omnipotent. But God can help. And so we're to cast those, those burdens that we're not supposed to carry forever. You're, there is a place that we're supposed to unload those burdens at, but it's at the feet of Jesus as we pray. He can do something. It's like the old hymn says, I must tell Jesus all of my sorrow. I cannot carry it alone. But we don't cast that on other people as much as we do carrying it to the Lord. We say, I don't know about all this complaining. It didn't really hurt Moses that badly. Look at how Moses feels in verse 15. If you, God, he's talking to God. He says, God, if you will treat me like this, making me bear the burdens of the complaining and the grumbling, he says, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight so that I may not see my wretchedness. Moses, he feels wretched. He feels burdened. How, how burdened do you have to feel before you call out to God to kill you? That's how we feel. I mean, mothers, fathers, don't you feel that way when your kids at home are grumbling and complaining? You're doing the best you can to provide for them, but they're mad because they don't have the same shoes that Timmy has over at school. And it's just you're like, oh, I can never do right. My kids are never pleased and it's a burden to you. Same thing if you're a boss at work and your employees are always grumbling and complaining against you. You're just like, oh, what a burden that is. And it's the same thing in a church. We don't wanna be a, a grumbly, complaining church because you're gonna burden your leaders and it's just gonna weigh them down and they're not gonna do their best work. In fact, do you know what the average length of stay for a Southern Baptist pastor is in a church? Years ago, it used, actually used to be worse. It used to be three and a half years. Now we've improved it to six years. And, but before we applaud and celebrate six years, I want you to hear this. If a pastor leaves at the six-year mark, in year three, he was already discouraged. In year four, he was prepping his resume and sending it out to people. In year five, he's doing his final conversations and preaching in a view of a call so that by year six, he lets you know that God has led him to a new ministry. Why would he be that way? It's because years before, he had, for some other reason, he's, he's under tremendous pressure and burden. How do we keep our leaders more encouraged and strengthened? How do we lift them up? And, I, and under that category, I'm not just talking about me, I'm talking about Theron, I'm talking about Brad, I'm talking about our deacons. How do we uplift these people who are giving their lives for you? Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Submit is just that word that means to willingly line yourself up under like, in a, like a military rank and file. Submit to them 
for they are keeping watch over your souls. There's nobody here who's in it for the money. You know, I hate to break it to you, I can make a lot more money elsewhere <laughs> doing the things that I do. We're here as a church because we are keeping watch over your souls. It's because we love you. It's because we care about what God is doing amongst us. He says, because they have to give an account to God. Let them do this, he says, with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Groaning, he says, don't make your, don't make your leaders groan by all of your, your pain and suffering that you lobby on them and you, you, you push off onto them, you know, laying it all on them. He says, that word, that word groaning is a word that means to squeeze. Ugh, you know, it just, they're just, they're wounded, they're hurt. He says, don't make them groan as they lead you. He says, that's no advantage to you. It's not an advantage to run your leaders out. It's no advantage to wear our deacons out so that people are like, do I wanna be a deacon? What's it like being a deacon, you know? We don't wanna wear these people out. He says, that's no advantage to you. It doesn't bless the church, and frankly, it doesn't bless you either. It's gonna wear you out. You're gonna be miserable. I've never met a happy, complaining person, have you? And frankly, part of that is because you don't have too many friends. Nobody comes to church and says, you know what, let's go over by, by uh, Jimmy over here. He's always got a, a caustic word to say. I can't hear what, I can't wait to hear what he's gonna complain about today. Hey, Jimmy, what do you got today? You know, oh, I'm glad you asked because oh, I'm upset about this and this and this. You don't wanna be around complaining. It's like being at Culver's. You sat down for your meal. You wanted to have a good time and Karen comes by and starts sharing all the complaints about the, the Culver's and the boss and these, these other workers and you're just like, oh, I'm gone. Okay, so if you're a complaining person, it's no advantage to you either. You struggle with friendship because you're, a, you're seen as a negative, caustic person. Who do you want to be around? You want to hang around positive people. You want to, you want to go somewhere where you know they're always going to have something positive to say about you, you know, or something positive to, to lift you up and encourage you. You know, I was uh, talking to uh, Alva and Fred Boggs this week, and uh, she was saying, that Fred, and she's saying good things, by the way, he always has something good to say about everybody. You probably have something good to say about the devil, right? Remember that? And what did he say back to you? He's persistent. <laughs> okay, so when you're around folks like that, you, you, know, you just know who you can go into in the church and they're encouraging to you. You know, I'm having a rough week. I'm gonna go over here to this person or this person, this person. They've always got something positive to say. They're excited about what God is doing here. Despite the suffering that I know is in their life, they've got, they're, they're going to encourage me. I wanna be around them, so it's no advantage to you to be a complaining person. You're hurting yourself. Satan has sold you a lie that to be a complaining person, to try to you know, manipulate and get your way is a better way to live than to submit yourself to God and trust God and to be a positive, faith-filled, loving person. I'll close with this illustration. There's a story told of a little old lady and uh, this is years ago, and she entered a department store, I think like Macy's or something. And I know department stores aren't quite as, as big today as they once were years ago, but years ago, it was, it was really the thing. And so this lady comes into the department store, and as soon as she walks in, she got startled because all of a sudden, this entire band began to play. And she says, what is going on? And all of a sudden, this well-dressed executive comes up, and he pins a little orchid on her lapel, and, and he's just congratulating, shaking her hand. They put a, hand, a handful of money, an envelope of money, into her hands, and uh, pretty soon people are taking pictures with her and these signs, and she's still confused as to what's going on. And a TV reporter came up to her, and they're, they're taping her, and they're asking her questions. So, what brings you into the store today? And she hesitates for a second before she said, I was on my way to the complaint department. 
You know, and that's kind of what church can be like. We walk in here, and friends, you've got people who are shaking your hand, and they're hugging you, and they're loving you. They're asking you how your week has been. Beautiful music is playing, and the riches of God are put into your hands. And yet, instead of being grateful for all that's happening, we're still on our way with an eye to the complaint department. Paul, or the, the writer of Hebrews says, that's no advantage to you. It's making you sad. He says, uh, from numbers we see that it angers God. It invites the judgment of God. It's a hard habit to break. And it burdens those who God has called you to lead. So let's pray together this morning, can we? Of Psalm 141.3, God, put a guard over my mouth. Help me to be like those people that I like to be around, those people who always have something encouraging to say, those people who always see what God is doing, not what God is not doing among us as a church. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that we, as we open up your word, as we study these things that were done long ago, that we see that the human heart has not changed. Technology has changed. We have iPhones in our hands. We have air conditioning, we have cars, but the hearts of man still remain the same, that we have these, these burdens and these difficulties and these sufferings, and if we don't handle it properly, we're going to find that we become a grumbling, a complaining, and a disputing people. And to be a church that's unified, we've gotta find a way to unload our burdens in the right place to take these things that we're frustrated with, that have offended us or we disagree with, but to take it in constructive words to the right people who are part of the solution. Take our burdens, our anxieties, and cast our cares upon you, Lord, because we know that you have the, the power and the omniscience to know what is the right answer. You're compassionate, you care about what's happening, and, and you're going to fix the problem in a way that we never could. And so God, put a guard over our mouths Help us to monitor every word that escapes our lips. And we don't just excuse our lack of, of care to just saying that's our personality, but God, help us instead to, to put a guard over our mouth, to be very cognizant and aware of every word that escapes, whether or not they are words of life or whether they are words of death. We ask this so that Jesus might be glorified in our words, in our actions, and that he might be central to all that we're doing here at this church. We ask this in Christ. Amen. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.